Welcome to the latest GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. Today, we will be discussing autism. My name is Dr. Hannah Rosa. I'm a locum GP in the northeast of England, and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. With me today, I have Dr. Nikki Mulgrew, who works as a salaried GP in County Durham and as a teaching fellow at Newcastle University's Medical School. She's also a mum to two autistic children. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nikki. Hello, Hannah. It's lovely to be here. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at GP Notebook for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcasts.com for podcast episode show notes and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. In this episode, we'll be deep diving into autism and our role within general practice. We're going to focus on two main areas. Firstly, we will look at when we should refer children and adults to specialists to get a possible diagnosis of autism. So, for example, when a parent comes in and asks if you think that their child could be autistic, what sort of questions should you ask? And secondly, we're going to focus on how we can adapt our workplaces and our communication styles to make our surgeries more comfortable places for autistic people to visit. A quick note on language in this podcast, we're going to try and use predominantly identity first language, for example, autistic person as this is preferred by many autistic people. To start off with, I thought we could both share some of our own experiences. Nikki, anything which comes to mind? Um, Yeah, thanks, Hannah. So I think it's probably important to point out, first of all, um, before we go on to look at the diagnostic criteria, uh, that all autistic children are so different and that, that can make recognition and diagnosis really difficult. Um, So in my own experience, my son, who's 10, is very sociable and chatty. He makes good eye contact. He's exceptionally good at reading body language and facial expressions. And he's very empathetic as well. Um, So he didn't fit in with what myself or the school imagined to be a, a typical Asperger's child who was quiet and socially awkward. And in fact, he was quite the opposite. Um, And the things we noticed in him, actually, was that he would maybe talk too much, can be very intense and does get very focused on different topics, which can change from one month to the next. Um, Similarly, uh, my daughter is actually on um, the waiting list for an autism assessment. Um, She presented very differently to my son. Um, So girls often present when they hit secondary school age because um, they can mask and that's something that we're going to come on to discuss later but they can really hide and um, manage their social interactions in primary school and then that becomes much more difficult for them when they hit secondary school. So in girls autism can present as fussy eating, as um, being bossy, um, anxiety um, and it's, it's sort of being mindful of, of those behaviours 
as well. So, um, yeah, so I don't, I think that essentially if a parent is concerned about their child in any way and think that they may be autistic, then what's important is not to judge them, to take them seriously. It's really important not to just think that their child is a naughty child or that they have poor parents and that it's a parenting issue. Um, just spend the time sort of finding out what the real issues are that, that they've got. Thanks, Nikki. It's really useful to have you here with both your clinicians and parenting hats on especially when it comes to discussing this topic. I have two clinical scenarios which came to mind when I was thinking about this podcast, and I really wish with hindsight that I'd handled them differently. The first was with a young autistic boy who came to see me with his mother as he'd had a high temperature for a few days. And when I invited him forwards to examine him, my voice was too loud and I could see instantly that he was retreating away from me and looking quite scared which then made the examination very difficult. The second was similar, but it was with an autistic adult who also had intellectual disabilities. And again, with hindsight, I realised that I invaded his personal space far too quickly. I was too upfront and loud, and he just refused to speak to me. And the only way I actually gathered any information was um, I left the room and his carer then asked the questions on my behalf. Now, I wish that in both cases, I'd asked the parent or carer how best to approach the patients beforehand, rather than diving straight in, which I guess is an important tip. So if we start off with the basics, what is autism? And Nikki, I know you have the ICD-11 definition. Yeah, so, um, so the ICD-11 definition states that autism spectrum disorder is characterised by persistent deficits in the ability to initiate and to sustain reciprocal social interaction and social communication. There's also a range of restricted, rep repetitive and inflexible patterns of behaviour, interests or activities that are clearly atypical or excessive for the individual's age and socio-cultural context. The onset of the disorder occurs during the developmental period, so typically in early childhood, but symptoms may not become fully manifest until later when social demands exceed limited capacities. Um, deficits are sufficiently severe to cause impairment in a personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And individuals along the spectrum exhibit a full range of intellectual functioning and language abilities. So from this, the key points are really the triad of um, symptoms. So the difficulties in social interaction, the difficulties in social communication and the behavioural differences, such as repetitive behaviours or restricted interests. Um, then there are the three further points. So firstly, that unlike other conditions which may cause overlapping symptoms such as anxiety, autism starts in early childhood. And often when I've gone back and asked parents who have been diagnosed with autism later in life, and um, whether they've had any troubles in school, they can often look back and admit that they've always struggled to make friends, that they remember having some very strong interests, um, for example, being obsessed with flags, um, and being able to identify every country's flag at the age of five. Um, 
The second is that it causes trouble with the person's day-to-day functioning. Um, often this can be hidden. Um, and so on the face of it, I've previously thought, this person in front of me can't have autism as they've been working. For example, they may be a teacher. They've been working for the last five years. They're in a long-term relationship. So on the surface, they seem to be managing day-to-day as well as anyone. However, when you scratch below the surface, it can become more clear that they're really working hard to put on this outward appearance of normality and it's exhausting for them. Um, Parents can come to you and describe their child as a Jekyll and Hyde. Um, And I think that's an important phrase to, to point out because... They will notice, for example, at school that the child that the child is very well behaved. The teachers might not be picking up on any issues because they're able to contain all of their stresses during the day at school where they need to, and then they can all explode when they get home to their safe place. Um, and you see a really different side of the the child then when they when they let all of the stress and frustration out. This is a really important point um, and it's referred to as masking or camouflaging. To mask or to camouflage means to hide parts of oneself, to blend in with those around you. And worryingly, studies are now beginning to find that masking can be detrimental to mental health. Autistic people who mask show more signs of anxiety and depression and the strategy may even be linked to an increase in suicidal behaviours which highlights the importance of providing help to an autistic person which doesn't aim to change them to fit into a world which makes them uncomfortable, but that instead aims to adapt our environments to make them easier places for autistic people to flourish, which is something we'll be focusing on more later. So I think the final point is that most, in fact, over 50% of those who have autism don't have any intellectual impairment um, at all. So so now, Hannah, I have a few quiz questions for you. Oh, no. <laughs> so autism is a lifelong neurodevelopmental disorder that affects at least 1% of the population. True or false? Oh, I'm going to say true. Yes, it's true. Well done. So, next question. A 2016 RCGP position statement reported the economic impact of autism on the UK economy has been estimated at £32 billion per year, making autism the single most costly medical condition in the UK, costing more than cancer, cardiovascular disease or strokes. Gosh, I find that surprising, Um, but the question is very specific in its figures, so I'm going to say true. And you're right again. So, yeah, a lot of this figure represents lost opportunity to enable more independent living um, and inappropriate care costs due to not recognising individuals' needs. Okay, so my final question. In 2017, an article in the British Journal of General Practice reported that 9.5% of UK GPs they surveyed disclosed never having received any formal training in autism. I'm going to go for true again. So, well, actually, the answer is false. It's 39.5% of GPs they surveyed reported never having had any formal training in autism. The survey also showed that in the previous year, 91.1% of the GPs have been approached by at least one patient about suspected autism 
with the majority, 78%, being approached by up to five people. So clearly, autism is a condition which affects many of our patients and there is a need out there for clinicians working in primary care to know who we should be referring to specialists for a diagnosis. Super. So that leads us nicely on to our next topic, diagnosis. But before we focus on the guidelines around diagnosis, I just have a few points to highlight. A recent survey of parents' views in the UK found that parents usually wait on average for a year from when they first had concerns about their child's development before they sought professional help. It then took, on average, around 3.5 years from the point at which the parents first approached a healthcare professional with their concerns to the confirmation of an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, over half of the parents surveyed were dissatisfied with the diagnostic process. From out of position in primary care, the situation is often further complicated by the fact that often the presenting issue will be for other behavioural issues such as frequent meltdowns, concerns about fussy eating or mental health concerns such as anxiety or depression, rather than questioning whether they or their child could have autism. Um, we should also remember that if a patient already has a diagnosis such as Down syndrome, a learning disability or ADHD, then not only can autism coexist with such conditions, but they actually increase the risk. And I think I'd just add on to that as well about family history, because I think if you've got a sibling or a parent who's on the autistic spectrum um, as well, then it's going to um, make you more suspicious of that as a possible diagnosis. Um, so whilst parents are waiting for a diagnosis and after receiving a diagnosis, it's important to consider whether any other referrals would be useful, um, for example, to speech and language therapy or occupational therapy, um, because there is a long wait to wait for a diagnosis. So there are other things that can be tried in the meantime. Um, occupational therapy really helped my son um, because he ended up being diagnosed as well with sensory processing disorder. And whilst I thought he needed a sort of dark sensory room with soft lighting, we actually discovered he needed things to be spinning on and jumping on and running around on. Um, and actually that was one of the most useful things in terms of his management that we've had to date. Um, so, yeah, important to remember those other options as well. Um, I think it's also important to remember... Um, to consider the impact on the wider family. So how are they coping? Does mum and dad need their own support? And again, you can signpost them to different resources and support groups. Um, so the National Autistic Society website is a good place to start. Um, and there are various different sort of local support groups that often help and support people even while they're waiting for a diagnosis. So it's worth them checking that out as well. Um, one thing that I found really helpful to do was the online Solly Hole parenting course. Um, that was really helpful as it helped me to understand uh, how the, my child was feeling generally and how best to respond um, and is something that had been recommended by health professionals to me. Um, this would also mean that your your patient would be one step ahead by the time they reach CAMS or PEAS as this is um, something that 
is also a kind of baseline thing that they would expect parents to do. Um, so the links to these resources are included in the show notes and useful really for any parents to do, whether you've got children with autism or not, I would say. so. Great tips. I think I should also go and have a look at the online parenting courses too. When it comes to the recognition and diagnosis of autism, NICE has two guidelines aimed at GPs, one focusing on under-19s and another on adults. Both guidelines reflect the triad of symptoms that we mentioned earlier, difficulties in social interaction, difficulties in social communication and behavioural differences. So for a child asking about social interaction, for example, how they respond to others, do they smile at appropriate times? Can they read others' facial expressions? Do they share and play games? And do they have an awareness of other people's personal space or are they intolerant of people entering theirs? For adults, you could ask how they found forming friendships and relationships. And do they interact socially with work colleagues, for example? How did they find school and have they had any problems obtaining or sustaining employment? For the second area, communication. For a child, you could ask about their use of spoken language, if they've needed speech therapy and how they refer to themselves. As autistic children sometimes refer to themselves as you or by their first name instead of using I or me. Do they use single words when they're able to speak in sentences? But remember that autism may be missed in children and young people who are verbally very able. For adults, do they sometimes misunderstand others, taking things too literally or struggling to follow jokes? And in the consultation, you may notice that they struggle with more open questions. And for the third area, asking if the child has any unusual interests, which are very, very different from those of their peers. And, you know, do they vary their imaginative play? How do they react to a change in routine? And do they have any repetitive behaviours such as hand flapping? Think about the five senses. How are they with different foods, new items of clothing with different textures or very loud noises? For adults, do they have any very specific interests or hobbies? And how have they handled moments of change in their life? And how do they feel when other people break the rules? So to guide you through the process of information gathering, there is the modified checklist for autism in toddlers, revised or M chat R, which is a screener that will ask a series of 20 questions about the child's behaviour. So it's intended for toddlers between 16 and 30 months of age and is freely available at autismspeaks.org. Um, for adults with possible autism who don't have a moderate or severe learning disability, you can consider using the Autism Spectrum Quotient or AQ10 test, which can be freely downloaded with a link in the NICE guideline, which we've included in the show notes. Um, this asks the person to score 10 statements based on how much they agree with um, those that apply to them or not. I actually used this on a child this week as well um, with parents who are wanting um, a bit more support with their autism referral um, and they hadn't completed one of these. So it was really useful for mum to go through that. And six was the kind of cutoff um, then where it suggests that autism is a possible diagnosis. So obviously that supported their referral as well. Good to know. So M chat R for toddlers and AQ10 for adults. 
And I guess, as you say, you could always signpost patients or parents to these beforehand. And sometimes I've found that if um, a patient has autism and you ask them lots of questions all in one go, then it can be very overwhelming. Whereas I suppose if they had the chance to look at these questions beforehand, that it would allow them to process the information in their own time. Okay, now Nikki, I have a few questions for you. Quiz, true or false, part two. Okay, I've got to try and better your score over two out of three now. Uh So number one, an autism diagnosis cannot be made before a child is three years of age. True. It is in fact false, which I was quite surprised by. Um, And NICE do actually highlight that we should refer children younger than three years to autism services if there is a regression in language or social skills. NICE also state that children over the age of three who present with regression in language or children of any age who have regression in their motor skills need a referral first to a paediatrician or a paediatric neurologist who can then refer to the autism team if necessary. Question two, females are less likely to be diagnosed with autism than males. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, it is true. We've kind of touched on it already. Um, And there are many theories as to why this is the case. And one is that women and girls are often better at masking or camouflaging their difficulties. Yeah, also I've read that um, those from ethnic minorities often receive a diagnosis of autism later when compared to white children, which I thought was interesting. So the National Autistic Society did some research into why this might be the case. And they asked autistic people from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds and their families about their experiences. One main theme that came out of this was around challenges getting a diagnosis So some participants considered levels of understanding of autism to be lower in their communities and others said that teachers failed to spot characteristics of autism due to incorrect assumptions about a child's behaviour or their language abilities. Gosh, that is really interesting. And question three, the name Asperger's syndrome has officially changed. True or false? No, I've, I've heard about this, so I think true yeah it it is true um but you know bear in mind that many people still use the term asperger's syndrome when talking about their condition the symptoms of asperger's syndrome are now included under the umbrella term of autism spectrum disorder and it is sometimes more specifically defined as autism spectrum disorder without intellectual or language impairment or as autism spectrum disorder level one which means that the individual is in need of a relatively low level of support. The reason for the change is often cited as it helps to avoid confusion, as often people thought of Asperger's and autism as two different conditions. So I have one sneaky last question for you. Studies have suggested that premature mortality is markedly increased in autistic people. I hope it isn't, but I have a feeling that this is going to be true. Yeah, so some research in Sweden found that individuals in the control group died at a mean age of 70.2 years, whereas the corresponding figures for the entire group of autistic people was 50.87 years. 
and there were higher rates of both mental and physical health conditions for autistic people when compared with neurotypical people. So if we can focus a bit further on autism and mental health here, um, the results of a survey in 2019 revealed that high numbers of autistic people experienced poor mental health. So 76% of autistic adults reported reaching out for mental health support in the last five years, with anxiety and depression being the most common reasons, and that 70% of autistic children had a mental health problem. Research has also shown that autistic people are significantly more likely to think about, attempt and die by suicide than the general population. The NICE 2018 guideline on suicide prevention recognises that autistic people are amongst the highest risk, which leads us on to our next area. How can we make our healthcare systems better suited to the needs of autistic people? Yeah, this is a really important area. As recent research has indicated that there are many barriers which prevent autistic people from arranging and attending healthcare appointments. And under the Equality Act 2010, we have a duty to make reasonable adjustments to make sure our healthcare services are accessible to all people. The National Autistic Society have produced a good practice guide, which is aimed at professionals who deliver primarily talking therapies to autistic adults and children. But a lot of the advice they give applies to all healthcare workers. So based on this, and with a few added insights of our own, here are our top five tips. Okay, so number one, the consultation. Introduce yourself clearly and if needed, slow down the pace of the appointment. When appropriate, ask the parent or carer if there is anything that you can do which may help with communication. For example, sometimes maintaining a greater distance of personal space, talking quietly or talking about something that they're interested in first might help the autistic person to feel more relaxed. And you can use a more concrete and structured approach by signposting regularly so that the autistic person knows what to expect and this can help. And if you're referring the patient anywhere, try and provide any further information you can on what will happen next. If they've been missing appointments, for example, for vaccinations or smear tests, ask if it would be helpful to talk through the process or to have some written information. Sometimes just knowing how things will go removes the uncertainty and can make a huge change. It's also important to give people time to process each question and ask questions. Um, and important for you to use unambiguous language. So no sarcasm, no similes, metaphors or rhetorical questions and avoid lots of open questions as well. Um, when you're asking questions, ask about one thing at a time. When explaining a treatment to a patient, again, you're going to need to try and be as specific as possible. For example, rather than saying that this should make you feel better, but stop if you get a bad reaction, say that these tablets should make your throat feel less painful and make it easier to eat your food, but very rarely they can cause a rash. If this happens, stop the tablets and contact the GP surgery or 111. Autistic people might find it hard to give scores, for example, when asking them how severe their pain is between 0 and 10. Um, and sometimes doing something whilst in the consultation can help them to feel more comfortable, especially if they're finding it particularly difficult to maintain eye contact 
Um, so they might find having something in their hands useful, like a fidget spinner or drawing a picture might be helpful. Um, and some autistic people can actually become involuntarily nonverbal. So in this case, ask if they would like to write things down. Um, just moving on, so discussing feelings can be hard. Uh, many struggle to separate emotions from how it makes them feel physically. And so to help explain the link, um, you could, for example, explain that if they're worried, then their heart rate will go faster and they may feel sweaty. Um, and towards the end of the consultation, doing a good summary and perhaps writing down the key points at the end would help. Um, thinking about unexpected changes, these can really provoke anxiety in autistic people, such as you running late, which is obviously often unavoidable. So if possible, you can try and offer an appointment at the start of a session or after a scheduled um, break as well. And you just might need to be more flexible. So some autistic people may prefer face-to-face -face appointments, whereas others may be more comfortable on the phone or with an e-consult. Um, sometimes multiple appointments may be needed as the autistic person may become too overwhelmed by the amount of questions being asked and uh, need time to process what has been said and to build up trust. So ideally, if multiple appointments are needed, try and keep using the same clinician for a bit of continuity um, and if possible, keep the appointments on the same day of the week and at the same time, which um, can be helpful, especially if routine is very important to them. Um, yeah, so moving on to Hannah, the physical environment. Yeah, so tip number two. So thinking about the whole process of going to the GP surgery or bringing the surgery can be incredibly stressful for an autistic person. Sometimes bringing someone with them or something from home can help. For example, one gentleman I knew used to bring with him his own chair as he felt uncomfortable with the way the standard chairs felt. Make the physical environment in the waiting room and clinical rooms less overwhelming if you can. And ideally offer somewhere quieter where a person can sit or give them the option of waiting in their car. And then think about your own consultation room. I read once some tips that police were given when being taught interviewing skills, which included making sure that they weren't wearing any very distracting clothing or jewellery or strong perfumes, which could cause a vulnerable victim to lose focus and stop sharing what they knew. In the same way, an autistic person may find the extra sensory stimulation overwhelming and restrict them from opening up. I never really thought that much about the clothes I was wearing to work beyond making sure that I looked relatively smart and clean. But then a patient commented that a black and white zigzagged pattern top I was wearing was making their migraines a lot worse. And I've never worn that top again. And, you know, hence just having that extra bit of awareness can sometimes help. Um, thinking about the room, I remember a doctor I used to work with had a book on his bookshelf all about Harold Shipman which even though I was, was never his patient, I found very disconcerting. Um, and another doctor I used to work with had a small water feature, which always made me need the loo. <laughs> I've actually got that Harold Shipman book in my bedroom bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. I have not in my doctor's surgery though. So, okay. So um, the third point is to add alerts to the patient's notes. So um, if you learn any key tips which can help the autistic person to feel more comfortable, then ask if it would be okay to add it to their notes as an alert. 
For example, if they usually prefer to sit somewhere quiet whilst waiting for their appointment or if they like to hold their iPad whilst talking. Number four, improve autism understanding for all staff via training. As we've already highlighted, 39.5% of GPs surveyed in 2017 reported never having had any formal training in autism. Maybe recommending this podcast to colleagues could be a good place to start. Yeah, and number five, lastly, ask for feedback from autistic patients and see if they'd be keen to join any patient participation groups. And with that, that's our last tip and it brings us to the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank Nikki for joining me today and sharing her knowledge and insights. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me. And thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please do have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com. And we'd be very grateful if you'd consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Feel free to get in touch via social media at gpnotebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Right, we're off to go and remove any Harold Shipman books from any (laughs) clinical rooms now. Goodbye. Bye.